This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Just be sitting up there jacked with Pepsi. I'm there for the pot goat, you just gotta pack me in committed to the bow early on like i love getting close and putting up you cover a range of stuff on here too right like we call this the uh, the thp world headquarters you know my grandpa roy weatherby i came into like that golden little pocket where there was like four or five different bowls just you're canadian we're doing yeah, a canadian I... podcast my name is douglas Bowes. i'm robbie denning Wolfgang. yeah so how's things Hey, good, man. Getting through a tough winter up here. Is that right? Lots yep. of snow down there? Oh, yeah. We we got blasted this year. Um, and it, the, the thing that's making it rough is it's been on the ground since late October. I mean, it, a lot of times we don't get it in the valley here till eh, late November. So it came about a month early. Yeah. yeah we, we got a lot of snow early, too, um, about a month, month and a half early, so... Maybe you could just start by giving yourself a little introduction. Sure, man. And what are we going to talk about today? Uh, mule deer. Right. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll do the introduction now then. Um, I'm Robbie Denning, uh, born and raised here in Southeast Idaho. Live about a mile from where I was born. I haven't made it far in life. Um, Not true. Got a family, uh, happily married 22 years, got three kids, um, I run a, a big online website called Rock Slide. Also have a full-time job at a health club. I've been there for 31 years managing a crew of personal trainers. And uh, busy all the time, but that's what it takes. And yeah. uh, love mule deer hunting. That's uh, really what, what got me in the outdoor industry and, and keeps me there. Um, written a couple of books on it, um, both titled Hunting Big Mule Deer. Uh, one of them is called how to take the best buck of your life. The other one is called, uh, the stories and, um, you know, rock slide is like crazy busy. I, I run a blog on there. Uh, it's, it's almost ready to turn 10 years old 
and I got wow. over 300 articles on that blog. If anybody wants to look them up, that's on there. And um, we'll still be posting to that, but we're getting ready to uh, uh, relaunch our Rockslide podcast. It won't just be me on there. It'll be a couple of different people, but I'll be on there sometimes. So that's what I do. Yeah, in a nutshell. So um, now for the people who don't know, you just hunt mule deer, right? Yeah, yeah. That I, I, I grew up hunting everything, you know, bears turkeys elk all that stuff love it um, but once you start chasing big mule deer it's it's tough number one i mean it takes all, all you got at least for me it does there's some uh better hunters out there that are able to pull off elk hunts and bear hunts and deer hunts but i'm not one of them so i just throw all my energy into that and some of it's just being a family guy you know there's only so much time i want to be gone in a year and and you know my wife's super supportive and everything but you know, I just, you can only hunt so much and be effective is really what it got down to. So, oh, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, I just quit chasing everything else and just threw myself at mule deer. Um, and just, just mostly for the focus of it, you know, I used to try to archery hunt elk and deer at the same time. And I just learned after a little while that you couldn't really do both at the same time and, and be very good at it. You know, yeah. about the time you were getting your spot and scope set up on a group of bucks, a bull would bugle down below you and then you'd be torn, you know, and off chasing him for a couple hours and then be back looking for the buck. So it was just easier just to focus. And, and that doesn't mean I won't hunt anything else. I took my dad cow elk hunting this year. Um, he's getting older and, um, had a chance to take him on a ranch hunt that would be pretty easy. And um, I did end up killing a cow elk this year. And first elk I've killed in, gosh, probably since the, the 90s, 96, 97, somewhere in there, if I remember right. Um, so, so it's not that I wouldn't go do any of that other stuff. It's just, you know, if I got so many vacation days to be gone and, and really so much mental energy to, to spend, I'm going to spend it on deer if I can. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. It's hard to, uh, to get it all in, especially when uh, you got a family at home, it's not really fair to them to spend too much time out there. Um, obviously, you can get them out involved as much as you can, but still, you got duties at home that need attending to. Yeah, and, and like my son, I've got two daughters and a son. My daughters haven't haven't wanted to hunt, but my son has, and so yeah, he's he's sixteen now. So in Idaho, you can start when you're ten, mm -hmm. and uh, so we, I took him elk hunting. We we did all that stuff, and. Um, I was pretty happy when he said, dad, I like deer hunting better. So, so that's, uh, that got me off the hook for having to hunt elk a whole bunch of days because <laughs> <laughs> I was getting worried. Yeah, um, no doubt. So that's, you know, the, the days off that he gets to, if he wants to go hunting, that's, that's what we do. Yeah. That's great, man. The apple doesn't fall far, eh? That's awesome. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I, I don't remember man, when it must've been about 10 or 12 years ago, I was walking by this garage sale and I picked up a book and it was, uh, the author was Kurt Darner. Yep. Now you had the opportunity to hunt with Kurt, didn't mm -hmm. you? What was he like? Um, Kurt Darner. Um, we go way back. I've been friends with him for 30 years. Um, for people that don't know him, um, he authored, uh, the book, uh, how to find giant bucks. Mm -hmm came out in oh 82 83 yeah. and it it revolutionized the the mule deer hunting world it was really the first book i that i think that i think made made mule deer got mule deer on the map and kurt had killed 
I think 13 record book mule deer that had made Boone and Crockett. Um, you know, he was kind of known as the man who rewrote the record book. And so, you know, it got a lot of attention, you know, that was, that was pre-internet, pre-cell phone, you know, the only way you could really meet other hunters was go to shows. And uh, he still sold a pile of books even back then without the internet. And, um, he was, he became kind of a celebrity. Um, and I, I was just a Kurt Darner groupie, like a lot of guys were then, you know, I was, you know, Kurt's 30 years older than me. Um, and I, I, you know, I reached out to him. He had, had what was called a hunter's information service. It was one of the first scouting service. It was the first one ever around. I don't, I can't think of anybody that was doing it before Kurt Darner was. So I had reached out to him and it turned out he was just a super nice person. Like, you know, he was really interested in, in people and, you know, getting to know you. And, um, you know, he, he didn't, he didn't come across as a celebrity. You know, I, I had met some other guys that were big in the industry then. And, you know, unless you were buying something from them, they weren't much interested in you. And Kurt wasn't that way. You know, he'd return your calls and stuff. And so I just got to know him oh, in the mid nineties and stuff. And he was uh, working with the uh, Mule Deer Foundation banquets and they would have a banquet in Montrose where he lived and he would invite everybody, not just me, everybody, you know, come support Mule Deer. So I, I really got to know him then because I would go down there, go to their banquets and stuff, you know, he'd offer you to stay at his house. I mean, he was just that kind of a guy, real social guy. And um, so, so that, that was how I got to know him and, uh, and his book. It's still, I still recommend people read his book. It's, oh yeah, it's a classic and he, he, you know, and, and I'll get into this too. He got in trouble later. Um, there was some, some shady stuff with, with his book. Um, the, the buck, the buck that was on the cover of his book, he was accused of buying that buck and saying that it was his got into oh. a big controversy with, uh, with it. And, um, apparently it was a buck that was killed on the Kaibab in the forties. Kurt said he killed it in 1977 and this raged on for a couple of years. And then university of Arizona got a hold of it. He, 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 he took it there. And I still have the article. It was from. Uh, it was printed by one of the authors from the the, the predecessor to the Mule Deer Foundation. It was called the Mule Deer Federation, is what it used to be called. And I still got the article. And the 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 carbon the, the they, they carbon dated it. And um, because of the difference in dates of when it was uh, reportedly killed, in the it might have been the late '30s. It was before above ground nuclear testing. Is what was kind of the 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 mark. That, that made the difference. And so when the university of Arizona tested the buck independently, they just took the buck, they, they drilled into the antler wherever they want uh, and um, took a sample from it. They said there was no way it was killed back then. Um, um, and, and they, they, the dates that they said were within the range of what Kurt said. Oh yeah. Um, so anyways, it was, it was too late by then it it, 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 too much damage was done and Kurt got, got into some trouble later on with, um, Oh, he bought some, uh, bighorn sheep heads from a guy turned out they were stolen. Kurt didn't steal them, but you know, when you're, when you're in the racket like that, you get, you get all the blame. And then he was also running a high fence elk ranch in the late nineties, early two thousands in New Mexico. And, um, a wild elk had got in with his domestic elk and he was in a big fight with the game and fish to come get their elk and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, 
uh, he, he ended up selling that elk along with some others. Um, how do I know all this? Because I went to, went to the trial in Grants, New Mexico in 2009 and, you know, listened to the whole thing. And, um, so he got in trouble for that. You know, that's like a cattle rustling law or something, you know, selling a, selling a wild elk. So he, he right. paid his dues, you know, he, he went on their probation and he didn't have a hunt license for a long time, put in untold amount of volunteer hours there at the hatchery in uh i think it was in hotchkiss uh, colorado um you know he became kind of like a normal employee there he did so many volunteer hours literally thousands thousands of hours he did in there you know so he paid his dues and um um so you know you asked you know what what's he like you know i told you that he's a great guy he's helped me a lot he's become a good friend i just wrote him a letter last week uh, Kurt is, I think he just turned 84 oh, yeah. and, um, I was wondering how old he was now. Yeah. 84 years old, doing pretty good. And, uh, you know, he's part of mule deer history is, is, is really what it is. And, you know, I, 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 some people, they don't like him. Uh, I get it. Um, but if you really knew him as a person, he's like a lot of us, um, n- none of us are all good. None of us are all bad. And, uh, he, he I learned a lot from the guy about mule deer hunting. And, and just about life too, you know, about family and everything like that. You know, he, he, he was a good guy, good mentor to me. And, um, uh, I love him like a brother. So yeah, that's, that's cool. what I know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's cool. I think if uh, nothing love you, Robbie, but if there was one guy I could talk to about mule deer, it would be that guy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Dude. He saw the heyday. He saw what we all dream of. And uh, I hunted with him and two, I've, I've guided for him. He hadn't, he was an outfitter for a while. I guided for him one year and um and then another year him and i went on a deer hunt and um he uh, just spent a, it was a like a five-day hunt and just spending that time with him and you know this was in 2004 we had a good fourth season hunt you know good unit he shot a 180 buck and we, as we were talking throughout that hunt it was just funny he's like you know these are all nice bucks that we're seeing and everything but, you know, he says back in like the 60s and 70s, he says, you, you, you didn't even look at these bucks. He says, you didn't even go after the 30 inches. You know, they were kind of in the way. <laughs> I can't even <laughs> Just, imagine. Yeah, but but it, it was cool in that he still adapted. It wasn't like he was a snob and like, oh, I'm not going to shoot a 180 deer. I mean, he, he knew that's, you know, this is what's available now. And but it was just just he grew up in and he, he was so far ahead of his time. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say that and is, is, is nobody killed that many Boone and Crockett bucks and people can say, Oh, he poached them. There, there was no evidence of any of that. You know, people just, you know, when someone gets in trouble, they just assume that everything they've ever done is, is, is a farce, you know, full fair enough, but there was never any, any evidence that any of those, those record book bucks were taken illegally and, um, you know, Kurt, Kurt was right there in, you know, Montrose, Colorado, Ridgeway, all that stuff. Everybody knew him. I mean, if he was out poaching on the winter range, they would have, they would have known it. And he had lots of pictures to back up what he'd done. My goodness. He killed a 300 inch mule deer just east of where I live in the eighties. Um, and, and he's got field photos, you know, it was, it was a September hunt. You can, you can look at the photos, tell that's when it was taken. I mean, there's, if, if Kurt had problems, it, it, I don't think it's, it's reflective on everything that he did. And, um, but the, the, there'll never be another Kurt Darner is what I'm trying to say. They'll never, yeah. there's no one that is ever going to kill that many Boone and Crockett bucks ever again. 
doesn't matter how much money they have. It doesn't matter what they do, you know, and maybe the high fence stuff that's going on in Mexico right now. Okay. Maybe someone can pull it off, but it, it'll never be pulled off the way Kurt did it. You know, they have high fence for mule deer down in Mexico. Oh yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, some a lot of these big, 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 big giant bucks you see on Instagram—they're just blowing your mind. Yeah, dude, those are those are oh. fed deer, and um, you know, yeah, those are they're they're helped. Okay, um, I knew there was elk, but I didn't I didn't realize that there was mule deer. I mean, that takes oh, yeah. kind of the 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 lure of mule deer is like big mule deer anyway is is how hard like how cagey they are, or how hard they are to find it. That to me, that's what draws me to them. Yep. 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 And, um, uh, so there's, you know, there's shenanigans going on now that are, that, that might allow somebody to take bucks like that and everything. But, you know, Kurt did it in the, in the sixties, the seventies and the eighties, you know, a lot of public land, not all, you know, Kurt, Kurt's like me, he'll hunt anything. You know, if he gets a chance to hunt a private ranch, he will, you know, he did all that stuff and everything, Definitely. but, um, you can learn a lot by, by, by reading that book. It's out of print. Now you got to buy it on eBay. It's, it's around, um, not, it's, not easy to get. I got one. Like I said, I got one a long time ago and it was, I think I paid, I think I paid like five, it had a $5 sticker on it or something. Oh, it still man, has, you it still has a sticker on it. Yeah. If you look that book up now, if you can find it, it's, it's, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna empty your wallet on it, but it's worth every penny. Yep. Yep. And, and Kurt was ahead of his time in that he was the only one doing that stuff back then. A lot of people, they just, it's not that they didn't care, but they weren't dedicated to it like Kurt was. You know, there were some great big buck hunters back then too. Kurt wasn't the only one taking big bucks by any means, but Kurt was the most focused, ahead of his time, driven, um, able to pass, you know, what it took to kill a Boone and Crockett buck then was just the, the same thing it does now is you kind of pass up pretty dang nice bucks. And mm-hmm. he was able, he was doing that when no one else was. Right. Yeah. Was he like, I know in the sixties and like, this is way before my time, but you know, I love mule deer. Like from my understanding in the sixties, hunting mule deer was like nothing that I could even imagine. Right. And my dad and Kurt are within 10 years of each other. So he hunted in the sixties too. And it was, it was still hard. That's the part that I think is lost on this generation is, is like, Oh, well it, it was easy back then. No, it wasn't easy. It was still hard. You know, right. you, you didn't have good gear. You didn't have good rifles. Geez. Kurt was hunting with an open sided rifle yeah, and no range finders. 60s. Yeah. And you know, my dad, my dad too, he hunted some of the best Boone and Crockett mule deer country in Southeast Idaho in the sixties. And yeah, he never killed one. He killed some big bucks, but no Boone and Crockett's. And so it was still hard, you know? And, um, but you know, you had longer seasons, you know, stuff like that. Uh, but it was hard in the sense of my dad, you know, like my dad would say, yeah, we had longer seasons, but you know, we didn't have all the good gear. We didn't, we didn't have snow machines. We, the trucks weren't all that great. You know, you just couldn't, you couldn't access it Yeah, like you can now, Mm -hmm. you know? And, um, but that's where Kurt was, was so different because he was so focused, you know, he would figure out how to, how to get it done. And, you yeah. know, camping in 40 below weather in northern New Mexico and, you know, building fires underneath the Jeep to heat up the oil to get it to start. You know, I mean, he he was he there was nothing that was stopping him back then where, you know, a lot of the guys from that generation, they didn't appreciate mule deer to that level. You know, their hands got cold. They went home yeah. and, um, you know, hunt another day. And, uh, you know, there were certainly some hardcores out there, you know, go read Ryan Hatch's, um, Idaho's greatest mule deer, his second edition there. You'll, you'll see a lot of them hardcore hunters back in the sixties, but there was still 
none of them getting it done like Kurt. Part of it was Kurt lived in Colorado and Kurt was one of the first people to really study Boone and Crockett. And, you know, back then everything was pretty much OTC. So the playing field was really level on where, on, on what could grow Boone and Crockett bucks with no um, excessive management. Where now, if you want to shoot Boone and Crockett bucks, you don't really need to study hunt and fool you or scooping <laughs> Boone and Crockett. You study hunt and fool and you look at the top units and, you know, and, and right. then you try to get a tag there. And, uh, but those units are intensely managed. Um, you know, some of them are not classic Boone and Crockett buck country, but it can still grow big bucks because, you know, when you give 50 tags and, you know, 500 square miles, of course you're going to grow some big bucks. But back then Kurt had learned to study Boone and Crockett and really focus on these counties that, um, had, had expressed these genes in, in number. And in many of the counties are still the same now, although if they're not managed properly, it's there, there may not even be one Boone and Crockett buck there, but Kurt was really good at, at filtering through, um, all the, I don't even want to call it data back then. It was, there wasn't even a data set. I mean, you just looked at Moon and Crockett and might, you know, if it said, you know, Array County, you know, then, then you still had to go figure out, you know, maybe that's a huge County where in this County is the mule deer country and, right. and, and, and that, that, that can grow a big buck. And he was, he just was, like I said, he was ahead of his time. Nobody yeah. else was getting it done in the numbers that he was. Yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's absolutely uh, amazing. Some of the bucks that you see that that Kurt uh, that Kurt was able to take. So your dad, he was known your your dad and your uncles. I remember you talking about it in the book in your book, um, your first book. Mm-hmm. Um, he was known. Uh, he passed. He was kind of like what's what started with you and like passing up smaller bucks to get big bigger bucks, wasn't it? Yep, yep, yep. Started with my dad and later refined by Kurt. Yeah, yeah. So your dad. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that's in my first book. If you remember, I have that little sub chapter called the one thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and because that is what it takes to kill big deer. Mm-hmm. And if you can't pass up even the pretty dang nice bucks, you're going to be 60 years old and you're going to look back and you're going to go, wow, I killed a lot of one seventies. And I meet guys like that all the time. They're better hunters than me. I've really, I've met guys like that. I could just tell, like, I'm, I'm hyper. I'm impatient. You know, I get frustrated. I, I got a short temper, you know, these guys are calm, you know, they, they shoot well. I don't shoot all that well. You know, I've wounded three or four big bucks in my life. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not calm, cool and collected, but I've, I've been able to pass up the pretty dang nice bucks. And that that's, that's what it takes. And you, you can get carried away with that too. You really can. I've passed up deer that I shouldn't have. Um, and end up skunked. Um, that's always the kind of the, the knife edge that you're walking. You know, you gotta, you gotta pass up the nice ones. You know, you gotta know, you gotta know what you're after, but you can also end up chasing bucks that don't even exist. You know, you know, they only Mm -hmm. exist in your mind. Um, and that's, that was my dad, my dad, that was my dad. He had four brothers. They grew up in the heyday of mule deer. My dad was born in 49. Um, his oldest brother was born in 47. The next two came in the mid fifties to late fifties. So by the mid sixties, you know, the peak of mule deer, they were all hunting age and they got to see it. And yet he was still the one that, that pulled off the better bucks. Um, because he, cause he could pass them up. He could, mm-hmm. he could be like, I've already killed a three by four. And, you know, and back then, you know, doe tags were ample. It's like, why waste, 
why waste my tag? You know, if I need meat, you could, you know, you had two deer tags, three deer tags back then. He, he you know, he would shoot a doe. And you know what? That's something that in areas, even now, if they can sustain doe harvest, if, um, if the, if the game and fish is able to only give one tag in that unit and it's either sex, that helps your buck numbers. And, oh, I can just hear people screaming right now, but it does, man. If anybody is convinced that bucks only hunting leads to more big bucks, you've been smoking dope, man, because it doesn't. And that's what was different back then. And I see it now, the dynamics in a few units where there are either sex options. Everybody's a big buck hunter on opening morning. But by two o'clock in the afternoon, a lot of them are, you know, hey, man, man, that's an awful nice sleek looking doe there. That would that would be great for the freezer. Yeah. And um, that takes pressure off of bucks. Now, I realize not everywhere can sustain that. I totally understand that. It's not 1960, but there's still places with excess does. There's units around here that have excess does. Um, so back to what you're talking about with my dad is, you know, he was, if he wanted meat, that's what he would look for. Um, if he could shoot a doe and, um, it was easier then cause you could, you know, you still have a buck tag too, but, um, you know, he, he didn't, he, he, he didn't mind passing up bucks to get a better buck. And, you know, it's not like he killed 30 great big bucks, but you know, on average he killed bigger than everybody else because he didn't just fall apart when he saw a three point, you know, he was, he, he, he knew to keep looking. So yeah. that's kind of where that started. But when I read Kurt's book, I mean, that was really what Kurt impressed that you can do everything right. And if you can't pass you're you're going to end up with some really nice bucks is what you're going to end up with and that and and never any bigger yeah not not that great one it's hard to do it's um it's tough seeing a nice big buck and then it, it, it's even harder is not punching your tag that year because it you're is. looking for a big buck but it, it goes back to what you're saying you can't get too crazy or else you're going to have a pretty empty freezer Exactly, dude. Exactly. That's one reason I shot that cow elk this year because I was going on three years of not punching a tag. I just went through a big slump. I don't know if you read my second book, but that last chapter called the slump, um, you know, that was written, you know, last year in January, that was my second full year of not punching a mule deer tag. And it was the longest I had gone since 99. Um, so over 20 years and, um, you know, it, it, what you said, it's hard, it's hard to not to not be successful, but I just wasn't finding what I was looking for. Yeah. And, um, you know, we just went through a really tough winter in 16, 17. There just wasn't a lot of bucks available. And so to even shoot a nice one, I would have felt a little guilty. I mean, I don't want to put that, that energy out there, shoot a nice buck. Don't feel guilty. Don't. But I was like, Hey, you know, I'll let these bucks grow up and mm-hmm. went through that for a couple of years. So this year it was getting towards the end of the season. And then we had the chance to go on that ranch for cow elk and, um, I really just did it to take my dad and my son, but I thought, you know what? I don't, I, my freezer, I mean, no venison in my freezer. I mean, it was gone in like September. Um, I thought, man, I should probably buy a tag too. And then sure enough, I got a chance at an elk and, and got one. And I was really happy, um, yeah. that I did, you know, cause I like elk meat. Elk meat's good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, but it's nice to have that meat in the freezer when you don't have to go to the grocery store and buy it. Sure makes it, especially with the cost of everything. These yep. days, geez. That's right. Get some of that, give me some of that gas money back. I'm spending on hunting. Oh, God. But man. I did end up killing Don't a good even deer going later. On the, the gas, oh. the amount of money you spent on gas this year was. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. We can't really it. say we're saving money on hunting. We're trying <laughs> no. to recoup our costs, is what we're trying to do. Kill something. <laughs> yeah. No doubt. So, do you find you're seeing less bucks this last couple of years? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Even down okay. there, right? Yeah. I, I, the amount of like we've had some hard winters up here, same as you guys, and um, you know a lot of people 
a lot of people say that. And I know you've said it before, like winners are the number one killer of mule deer. Um, and I agree. Um, winners and roadkill. I don't know what you guys are like down there for vehicle collisions, but up here it's, uh, it's pretty nasty. I mean, I, there are some stretches of road. I don't even remember driving where I haven't seen a blood splatter or a dead deer on a mule deer on the side of the road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a great point. And, um, in, some of our units, um, and, and I had an ex, it was a game warden that told me this and I, I thought it through and I thought, you know, he's probably right in some of our units, um, that are only have the two week buck season in them, which is a big chunk of Idaho. We have a, 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 a it's an over the counter tag for residents. It's, um, it's over counter for non-residents with a cap. So it's hard to get, they sell out in a day. Um, so it's a two week bucks only season, October 10th to the 24th, which, which is pretty conservative management. It really is a 14 day buck season. That might sound pretty long, but you know, Idaho <laughs> is not Alpine, the deer and the cover. It's a, just a tough time to hunt them. You know, after about eight o'clock on opening morning, it's, <laughs> it gets way tough. Yeah. And, uh, the, so some, a lot of our, not a lot, but this, this particular unit, this warden was talking about, he's, he, he, he made the case that we're killing more bucks on the road than we are during the rifle season. Huh. And man, it really made me think like, wow, God, you know, cause you know, maybe there's a couple hundred bucks harvested in that two weeks in that particular unit. And he's like, we're, we're killing that many on the highway, yeah. you know? And, 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 and it was like, wow. It's <laughs> kind of a bummer, you know, <laughs> yeah. that you, you could close hunting season and still have just as many killed on the highway. Uh, so, it, and that's certainly not everywhere. I don't want to make it sound like that, but it was an interesting stat. And so, so yeah, roadkill can be um, substantial. And, and down here in the States, and this has been great, and this is why I'm a big supporter of the Mule Deer Foundation. And you, you Canadian guys, you, you ever th want to come hunt the United States, man, spend the 30, 40 bucks a year and join the Mule Deer Foundation. They'll send you a great magazine. It'll give you a, a good handle on mule deer ecology, mm -hmm. biology, hunting articles. It, it's a good little magazine. And, um, uh, and then plus you can support mule deer. And, and where I'm going with this is they've been instrumental in supporting projects of studying migration routes on because uh, you can't fence every highway in the United States, but you can fence the ones that are going to make a difference. And Mule Deer Foundation, as well as, you know, different uh, states, transportation departments ha have in the last 20 years fenced a lot of uh, interstates and highways that are in critical migration areas. And that has helped. That has really decreased roadkill. And uh, in a lot of places, they've built underpasses. Uh, Wyoming's really getting into this right now where the deer can go under the highway. Under and uh, yeah, none of it is good as just not having the highway at all. But, you know, it, it, it yeah, that's... because, you know, when you fence it, you know, you change migration routes and things like that. And sometimes deer can get trapped in certain areas. But um, the, the Portneuf Gap, which is south of me, um, down by income, you know, I just, I went to college down there and gosh, dude, you, I mean, you could go down and find like what you said, there were dead deer every day. There's a blood splatter yeah. here, you know, and a, a, you know, there's car parts laying everywhere. I haven't seen a dead deer right there in years, you know, that, because it's all fence now. And, and right. we just drew, drove through there on 
two weeks ago coming back from the expo and uh there the deer were i saw them right against the 10 foot fence you know and 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 again i know that you know that that can cause some problems too because they can't migrate exactly like they're supposed to but it, it's saving a lot of deer yeah and so so uh you know any any support we can give entities that are doing that um you know that that can add up to significant survival for for deer and yeah. humans i mean people get killed in these car wrecks too oh. remember yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the thing about, we don't have anything, um, like the high fences, we don't have, you know, the mule deer to a lot of people are just a nuisance, but you know, with the high grade, with the high fences and interrupting their migratory pattern, um, if they're dead, they're, they're not going to have one either way. So yeah, that's um, right. <laughs> that That's one thing about mule deer is like, they're born with that, that instinct to have like that migratory pattern is just it's bred like it's born into their dna and it's it's they're pretty amazing creatures um you know which is one of the reasons i love them so much yeah they don't know any better and then we go and put a road or you know we build a town in an area where you know that's their migratory pattern it you know mm -hmm. it, it's really hard to change that um yep and that's what's cool about what wyoming's doing right now and people can can um, go google this and just mm -hmm use the keywords, you know, Wyoming migration corridor, migration studies, things like that. It'll come up. Um, it's, um, early in the morning here. So I'm a little rusty in my brain, which organization is doing it. So I don't want to botch it, but um, yeah, I think it, well, I know like, yeah, there's like the Wyoming, uh, mule deer fanatic, fanatic foundation. Uh, I think I know the, the university of the, the university of, uh, British Columbia up here, they were working with the university, one of the organizations down in Wyoming, um, to, they're working on what's called a southern and deer a southern um interior mule deer project up here similar to what they were doing down there and it just started it's been going for a couple of years and it's really great um so to learn a yeah. lot about mule deer yeah same one I, I googled it while you were talking the wyoming migration initiative is what yeah it's that's what it's called and um uh, uh you know they're working with government agencies um, universities uh stuff like that mm -hmm. um and studying these migration routes which is helpful and like you mentioned like oh we built a town right on the migration route mm -hmm. um well now that they can identify these migration routes we can better plan for growth because there is places you're not you're not hurt you're not harming anything by creating a you know a town or development or whatever um you know we're just a few miles away it could be very harmful yeah and so they're identifying those areas so i kind of think that's going to be the future of mule deer management is identifying and conserving these places that allow these herds to continue to to survive and we're talking about migratory herds most are yeah. not all are um but you know preserving that habitat and you know building elsewhere um, developing elsewhere with smarter development and better planning. Um, that's, that's, what's going to ensure mule deer survive into the future. When I was in uh, my early twenties, I was a volunteer for our local fish and game. And we have in Idaho, what's called wildlife management areas and in our, our game and fish, um, buys land if they can you know land as it comes up for sale you know uh critical habitat maybe it used to be an old 650 acre farm you know they they try to buy that or different partnerships you know maybe maybe it's blm they can't really buy it but they can work out a partnership with blm to you know better manage it for mule deer 
And um, so we have all these 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 WMAs around Idaho. One of them's just east of me here. It's called Tex Creek, and I can't remember the acreage on it. It's big. Um, and I remember in my twenties working up there, um, helping lay down fence for the migrations. Uh, you know, taking the uh, the, the top wire, the top two wires off the fence. So it was easier for deer to migrate. And I was working with, um, he wasn't a biologist. He was like a tech, but he'd worked there for many years. And he said, you know, this, this area, by the way, I just looked up it's, it's 484 square miles, Tex Creek wildlife management area. It's huge. And he says, this, this, what we're doing now is going to ensure we have mule deer and elk, um, 20 years from now because by protecting all this from development, because, you know, it's big plateaus, perfect place to build condos and you know, stuff like that. And he's like, as this, as these farms, you know, convert um, into, it's basically public ground when the fishing game buys it, you know, we can better protect it. And, uh, you know, and I remember to kind of listen to his speech and everything. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, of course. Well, you know, here it is now, you know, 25, 30 years later, dude, it's as wild up there as it's ever been. And it's, you know, it's kind of being taken over by elk like everywhere. Uh, but it's still got a good mule deer population in there. Um, and no development, you know, he was right. Yeah. You know, that vision that they had for that future. And, and there's still plenty of places for people to develop around here and not, not hurt that. And so that's why these, you know, studying mule deer, you know, sometimes people say, oh, they're studied to death. And well, we don't have any choice. You know, we got it. We got to take care of them or they're not going to be here. They're, they're struggling, you know, and they need, they need this habitat to be conserved or there'll be nothing, you know, elk yeah. can go live anywhere. They'll go live on some, you know, somebody's garden and some knob five miles away the next day. You know, they're, they're, they're very adaptable. Yeah, they are. You know, but deer aren't, you know, they hunker down. They go like what you said, these migration patterns, are built into their, to their DNA. It's how God made them. You know, they've been migrating for thousands of years and, um, you know, it's passed on through, through the generations, you know, th for the does, the does leading these fawns back and forth to winter range and everything. And so if we can conserve that, we can conserve mule deer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wish we had more, more of those kind of, of programs and stuff up here. It, it's hard to talk to people about mule deer here because we, like we have urban city deer problems and people see mule deer and they're like, Oh, what are you talking about? There's tons, there's mule deer everywhere. I see them every day. And you're like, yeah. well, no, they're okay. They're here eating your tulips out of your garden. But you go in the back country, they're, they're hurting. There's wolves over logging. Like there's so many variables, you know, winters we've had hard winters up here. And then you, you know, um, in Canada and British Columbia, especially there's a howdy housing shortage. So they're putting developments everywhere. They're putting roads everywhere. So, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of variables and it's hard to convince the general public to, to, like you said, do extra studies or put any funding, funding into these, you know, into the stuff when they don't really see mule deer as being a problem or no mule deer being a problem. I don't think that's just a Canadian problem. Just so you know, we've got, certainly got urban urbanites here. You know, I think 80% of, 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 the U.S. Uh, population lives in an urban area, so they're very disconnected mm. from it. And that's why it's important to have these orgs like uh, Mule Deer Foundation mm -hmm. and, you know, support your game and fish and everything because, you know, we we, if we, we, we have to. I mean, it's, it's, it's the only way that you can get public support to do this stuff. So so don't give up, brother. We're, we're fighting the same thing down here. Yeah, that's good. Uh, I'm going to try to be really cognizant of time here. You know, I, um, it's early in the morning. you got a busy day. i got a busy day. Uh, I'm at home right now playing Mr. Mom. So, uh, I got All right. three, three kids. That's a good um, dad, man. <laughs> so, uh, 
scouting. I want to talk about scouting and then touch on your books and then hear Mildur's story. Um, All right. Scouting. Can you talk a little bit about your scouting techniques now? Mm -hmm. For me, scouting Mildur is always like it to be, have a good Mildur season. It kind of had to start early. Like I had to start going scout. Like generally actually when I was hunting bear in like June, I'd be doing, you know, it's kind of looking for meal deer at the same time that I was looking for, looking for bear. Mm-hmm. Um, talk a little bit about your scouting. Cause I know you actually, you spend, you'll actually go out scouting before the season and you'll, you'll load up your horse. You'll actually make a camp and spend, you know, just like a typical hunting trip. You'll be out there for multiple days scouting. Have to. That's why I just focus on mule deer because it's almost a year. Scouting is year round for me. I went last Saturday. Um, I start scouting as soon as I'm recovered from the the hunting season, you know, healed up mentally and ready to get back out. So a lot of times I start in December. I'm looking at, uh, at the bucks on the winter ranges in various units, um, seeing what made it through, getting a, you know, a rough idea of how that, that population might be doing. And, um, you know, you do that for enough years in a row, you kind of know what to Mm -hmm. expect from each unit. You know, you know, we talked about gene expression with Boone and Crockett, you'll, you'll know which units are growing bucks like that, even though they're still, you know, they're, they're a unicorn at best, you know, there's, if you, you, you visit 10 different winter ranges and 10 different places in the state and you look back over 20 years and go, wow, I've only seen two Boone and Crockett bucks and they were in the same place. That kind of tells you, you know, what, what that unit could produce. And it also shows that, Hey, these other units, maybe they don't grow great scoring bucks, man, big old nasty buck, you know, 34 inch wide, three by three by nine, you know, you, you, you kind of learn that kind of stuff. So, so that's why winter scouting is, is so important. And shed hunting used to be be, be important for me as you, if you read that first book, I mm-hmm. kind of let it go over the years just because it got so competitive. And like what I said, I, I, I never, I always felt like I'm kind of part of the problem here of overwinter survival. You know, I heard harassing deer and, you know, and, and, and I'm not against shed hunting. Don't please people don't take, take, take it that way at all. I'm not, you know, I love to shed hunt, but it just got so many people going in the winter. It, it's impactful in, in a lot of areas. They are, they are affecting over, um, overwinter survival for mule deer and, and so, and then shed seasons came in and in some places and area like our WMAs, sometimes they close, so you can't shed hunt on them. So I kind of let that go because, um, there are enough shed hunters out there, uh, that, um, you know, that, that, that pick up the sheds. I, I always, fi- almost always find out what's out there. You know, some people show me their sheds and everything that's close enough for me. So I can take that data. But if you live in an area where you can shed hunt and everything, that's, that's, that's good information for you to have, mm-hmm. um, you know, what kind of sheds are being picked up in the area and everything. Uh, there's one place around here that's, um, it's got a closure on it. And when it opens, um, in the spring, you know, I always go and, oh, it's just a rat race. Um, I'm not really there to pick up the sheds, but to look at what everybody else picked up because, you know, you, you only have about 20 minutes of good shed hunting and everybody's ahead of you, but you can still get an idea of, of what guys are picking up and everything. And so that, that's important too. About the only time I'm really not scouting much is, uh, maybe from now until June, but I'll still go out and look at the deer, see how their body conditions are. And that's what was interesting Saturday when I went out, we're having this really hard winter. I'm, you know, I'm really concerned about the deer yet. When I went out Saturday, I was surprised the body conditions that they were, they, they were doing pretty good. They, they were pretty good looking deer. You know, I didn't see them raggedy skinny suckers mm-hmm. that you usually see right now. And you know, I, 
looked like the, the 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 fawn survival was still pretty good which it usually is they they usually kind of start dying in march and everything but you know if the, you can still tell this time of year by body condition and it was looking pretty good looking pretty good at least the area i went you know there's a lot of ag around there they probably eat a little bit better there in the winter than maybe some of our mountainous units um but then when i get into you know, kind of third week of june or so you know you can tell what a buck's gonna be by then you know i've seen 30 inch bucks on the, the last week of June, multiple times, you know, they, they're, they're that wow. big by then. And so, especially the lower country, uh, the foothill country, um, even on into the desert. Yeah. By late June, I'm, I'm rolling. I'm out a couple days a week looking for bucks. And, uh, that's why you see so many velvet bucks on my Instagram stuff, you know, cause I'm look, looking at them then trying to get an idea of what's out there. And then that continues, um, clear up into the hunting season and I'll often spend, not as much time scouting as I do hunting, but pretty close to it. You know, so if I hunt 30 days, I'll bet I've scouted 30 days uh, uh, j just in the summer, just in the right. summer, not counting the winter scouting, you know, and, and that's not, you know, 30 days all day packed in, you know, I, I do trips like that. I did two or three of those last year in various various places and um you know but sometimes just out for the morning if it's a place that's not very far away but but again that's why i just focus on mule deer i want to have all that time available to me i don't want to be worried about you know our archery elk opens next week man i got to be ready for that and you know what are the mm -hmm. bulls doing i don't even i don't care about that stuff anymore I, all that that was just a big distraction for me you know same with spring bear hunting you know like well there's you're not really hunting mule deer in the spring yep but i'm saving my days um mm -hmm. um you know th things like that and that's just me personally that, that yeah. worked well for me and uh so so scouting is 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 soup it's uber important to me and it's fun it's fun there's a lot less pressure in scouting than there is hunting and um you know so every year by the time i, I roll into uh, our archery season's open here you know late august depends on which state i'm hunting in you know early september um I almost always know what I'm hunting by then. Almost, almost always after a particular buck, or at least an area that's doing really well. Um, last year, um, the archery buck that I uh, that I wounded, um, shot him across the brisket, just nicked him. He, he's alive and well. Um, uh, I never found him till just a couple of days before the season, and um, you know, then that's that gets back to scouting, just continuing to look and and and. You know, a lot of times I'm tired by the end of August, you know, I'm, it's almost like hunting seasons winding down, you know, cause I spent a lot of days out there. Um, uh, and you know, all summer looking and I still never found a target buck until just a few days, uh, before the season. And, uh, and I'm not even sure if I found him, I found a group of bucks and, and I only got to see him for a few minutes as they were going into the brush. And it looked like there's some really nice bucks in it, like the nicest bucks of the summer. And I thought, well, I should at least be here for the opener and, you know, get, get some, some good, cause I saw him from a long ways away, get some good eyeballs on him, And, uh, and I did, it took about a day or two opening day and the second day to really filter through these bucks. And, um, this, this, this buck that I, that I ended up nicking was, was there. And, and I'm not even sure if he was one of the bucks I saw, but he was a good buck, man, 30 wide, um, uh, kind of a nasty looking, didn't score very well. Um, I just screwed it up and didn't make a good shot on him in the wind. And, um, um, but my whole point is, is I never really found him until either right before the season or maybe even the first couple of days. Like I said, I never could identify which buck I had seen. There was another really nice, you know, 180 style buck there too. Um, and so I'm kind of going on and on, but that's, that's why scouting is so important so that I know what I'm getting into and our rifle seasons, you know, like I said, open in October. When I say R, I'm talking Idaho, but you know, I hunt um, Colorado, uh, Wyoming, if I can, um, Northern Nevada. Um, and so 
it's scouting in the summer is, is important even for, um, October rifle seasons, um, even mountain seasons, as long as the season opens before October 15th, a lot of times those deer are still on summer range. So if I'm scouting those deer in July and August, there's a good chance they're going to probably be within a square mile of uh, where I found them in the summer. Not always. Um, but, um, it, it, it's, I just, hate showing up, not knowing what's going on, not having a feel for what's going on. You know, I, I, I can't say I've, I think I, I, when I added it up one time, I killed about 30, 30% of the bucks I've killed, I had pre-scouted. So that means 70% of them. I just found them on that hunt. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the way I look at that is, well, I upped my odds, uh, 30, I, 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 I killed 30% more big bucks because of my scouting and even the other bucks I hadn't seen before. A lot of times you're not just scouting for bucks, you're scouting for areas, just kind of like what I gave you that example about archery. You know, I, I went into that saying, okay, I saw some big bucks across the Canyon, you know, for like 30 seconds, one morning at daylight, they still look like the best ones I'd seen. This is the area I'm going to hunt. And, 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 and that's why I can't definitively say that I actually shot a buck that was in that group. I don't know, but that area had kind of turned on for whatever reason, you know, that was, that was doing well that year. And it was an area I'd scattered on and off over the years and, you know, a lot of times you just see a skinny old four point. Um, and so, so sometimes scouting is just, just locating the area, even if you don't locate the buck that yeah. you're looking for. So, so that's, that's what scouting means to me right there. Yeah. Yeah. I very rarely, like whenever I seem to find a good buck in like May, June, I very rarely can ever find that thing again come mm-hmm. September. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that I haven't, I just, yeah, there, unless, unless I'm constantly watching and watch them, moving down to like second secondary living and stuff like that mm-hmm. i'll lose them and then i just they're they're tough they're they're cagey they're hard to pick up so yeah okay but i'd ask you this so was it a waste of time to find them in june and july oh hell no no <laughs> there you go brother yeah. right because you learned something right oh yeah absolutely. This area or hey it's turning on big bucks here whatever you know yeah, yeah and like you said in the areas and like when you where you find where you find these bigger bucks like year after year, there's, there's something in there that they love, whether it's topography, feed, you know, mm-hmm. access, anything there, mm-hmm. they are always good bucks in there. So what would you say? Like, if, if you're going to tell somebody, if you're going to a new spot, what would be like the three main things that you're looking for, um, for deer habitat where you, where you would generally think you would find good bucks? Well, you got Alpine deer that are usually there till mid September, early October. You got subalpine deer that could be there clear till the migration, and then below that, you've got foot foothill deer uh, um, that that typically are not they're not as migratory. Um, you know, you can find those deer a lot of times in those places clear into December, and and maybe even longer. Some some places they can stay there year round, and then you get into the desert where they can almost always stay year round. So you got to you got to play your strengths. Is is what kind of habitat? Which which one of those is going to be the best for you? So you know if yeah. you're if you're not uh, physically able to do backcountry, um, and then you know maybe look at some one of those other habitat types. <laughs> A lot of people, you know, they read my book and they think, oh, this guy's camped on some peak for 40 days in the backcountry, never sees a human. Well, sometimes, but there's that buck I missed last year, man, he was, he was living a mile off a highway. 
and, and as far as I know, you know, I, I, I hit him during archery season. Um, it didn't kill him. Um, and, uh, I know the guys that rifle hunt down there. I ended up in a different unit for rifle cause I'd seen another buck and I don't like to rifle hunt that unit. It's just too, too flipping busy. They all get pushed onto private or at least with archery, you know, they're coming on and off of private. Um, um, that that my my i played my strength that's what i'm getting at my strength yeah. that that buck was like okay i'm i i don't i don't need to be in the back country for that buck you know these bucks are right here i'm just gonna hunt here um but yet by the time october rolled around i was playing my strength i was on a back country buck because i knew some some places that had produced them and had my scouting and things like that and so i don't i don't just run around nilly willy that's that back to the scouting thing, you know, play your strength. If you're not able to hunt the back country, hunt the front country and, and know that piece, that, that, that piece of country really well, know the access points, know the wind, know the, know the landowner at the bottom that doesn't let anybody through, know the landowner on the, on the highway side that actually does let a couple of people through, know all that stuff. It's not random. This is all good information. And so, so I, I didn't give you three things there, but I, I just kind of tell you how I think, you know, is, yeah. is, play your strengths, you know, and I see some guy headed up a horse trail with a, you know, a, a 7,000 cubic foot backpack and, you know, he's, he's ready to go for a week. And I'm thinking, dude, there ain't a basin up there that doesn't have a horse camp in it. I mean, what are you going to do? How are you going to outcompete these guys? And, and same for me, there's places, you know, I don't take my horses on like the outfitter has this covered. And even though the people, the outfitters taken, aren't that good of hunters, the outfitters a good hunter. He knows, he knows what rocked to sit on at what time last year, the biggest buck I found last summer, I didn't even end up hunting him because, um, there was a, an outfitter in there and I ran into the, to, to, to the guys when I was uh, scouting and just talking to them, I could tell they got this buck covered. They got every tree on this hillside named. I'm not going to go compete with them. And so, so play your strengths, you know, hunt the kind of country that gives you an advantage. And, and then, and then be, you know, focused like a laser beam. You need to be the first one there and the last one gone. I don't leave until I'm convinced that there's just no way to kill this buck or he's been killed or, you know, I don't leave just because I haven't seen him. Yeah. Yeah. And you do cover all that stuff in your book actually. So, um, um, that's good. And one other thing I like what you talk about in your book is conversing, like just talk mule deer with people. And that's one thing I started doing, like just talking to random people about mule deer um, it's amazing how much information you get. And I learned that actually, you know, I always had a hard time with just breaking out conversation with people, but I kind of just forced myself to do it after reading your first book was, you know, just talk mule deer, just talk mule deer. You're going to find out a lot of information if you just talk mule deer. And I, you know, from, um, people hiking trails doing, you know, doesn't matter bloggers. I found that, you know, once you start up strike up a conversation with them, they're more than willing to help you out and tell you what they've seen way better than talking to hunters, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, absolutely. yeah we're, we're all hiding our information, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> but you know, I, I run into some guy running a chainsaw up on a, on, on a, a logging operation. I'm there in July and you know, I I'm scouting. He's super interested in what I'm doing. Like, wow, yeah. what are you doing out here, man? Oh gosh. Have you seen any bucks around here? I like to check these, these logging areas and everything. Well, dude, as a matter of fact, a couple mornings ago, right down the road, I saw three bucks cross the road. Oh, Frank, yeah. you go up there during hunting season and ask a hunter for that same information. He's going to lie to you. 
yeah. you know? So oh, no, yeah. I'm glad you bring that up, man. There's a lot of value in talking to people in mule deer country, especially outside of the season. Cause during the season, you know, they're all nervous and yeah, I guess guys, you know, he's probably going to do a mass shooting here. You know, he's got a rifle. Oh guy he scares me. He's in blaze orange, but you know, you're out there when mule deer season's closed, you know, pe people are pretty friendly. Um, I, I know you're thinking of that story I had in my, my book that, um, about yeah. that guy in the store that drew that on that napkin where those big bucks were coming <laughs> into that field and, and 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 dude he was just more than willing to help me you know i think i had an orange hat on when i walked in the store i can't even remember but he's like hey and this was a muzzleloader season which is, is not popular at all hard to even kill one it's kind of a meat season you know and and he just asked me what I was doing. Hey man, looking for some, looking for some nice bucks. I try to never play the trophy hunter card with people yeah. that turns people off too, but just looking for a nice buck, you know, you know, it's, it's like seven days in the season. He hasn't even seen a hunter. Everybody gave up after opening days. Like, well, my goodness, I went and buy a horse the other day from this guy and he had three big bucks on the back of his property and, and you can't hunt there, but right behind his property it's all blm i'll bet nobody even goes up there and i thought well i should probably go look dude sure enough right where that guy said there was there was there was two really good bucks in there i ended up getting a shot at one missed him my screw up um you know he was a 30 inch three by four i had been there like six or seven days i hadn't seen anything bigger than a three point and that was based on just one tip from one guy that wasn't even hunting and he drew it on a napkin on a counter when i was buying a pop you know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that yeah. you can, and, and, you know, you, you, you got to talk to a lot of people, you know, there's mm -hmm. not a lot of that going on. That's why that's such a memorable story for me, but, but still, and, and, and by the way, I ended up killing another good buck, not far from there in the same unit. Um, two years later, uh, the, a 191 muzzleloader buck I killed and, and it was still, and it was still based on just tips that I had received from that guy and just giving me confidence in the unit and, you know, kind of how to hunt it. And the other thing I learned about that, quit hunting the big mountains in that unit. Everybody's up there hunting elk and screwing around and it was hardly anybody hunting, you know, the kind of the broken up stuff that was hard to get to. And, you know, you some of it you couldn't even hunt because it was private you know they, they hated hunters you know don't even park on the road you know we get out of here you know that those kind of people yeah. you know and 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 so anyways i'm going on and on like i always do but 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 yeah there's there's a lot of value talking mule deer with people and not oh. necessarily hunters yeah absolutely it's such a great tool to use and like i said i i really had a hard time just striking up like being converse to striking up a conversation with people that i didn't know but once I got used to it and did it a few times, then it's it's amazing the value or the information you can get out of people and just the willingness that they're actually you know they're they're more than willing to help you out. It's uh, it's pretty impressive. It's awesome. And I think it leaves a good taste in their mouth too for yeah. hunters because they're like, wow, this guy is like really dedicated. You know, he's out here looking. That's why I never play the big mule deer card with those people like that. I don't want them to, cause it's not what it's all about, yeah. but if that's what you talk about, that's what they think, you know, but you know, I let them know, Hey man, we, cause some, some people don't even understand. We eat the meat. You know, mm -hmm. I've run into people that are like, so you just take the horns and leave the meat. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> so, you know, I always let them know, you know, I, you know, I really like mule deer. I like the, I like the venison. That's, you know, it's what, what, what you know, what, what we eat at the house and everything. And, and it just leaves a good, a good feeling for them. Like, wow, this is, this is a really dedicated hunter out here. Yeah, no, it's great. And again, you go all over all that stuff in your first book. So what, why the second book? How come you wanted to write another book? 
Oh, dude, because in the first book, um, some of the feedback I got is everybody was like, hey, man, we love the how to angle mm-hmm. of the book because that's really what it, what it was. That's why it's called, you know, how, how to take the best buck of your life. Um, you know, it was all all that stuff. But as you saw, you know, I put stories in there, too. Mm-hmm. And I got a lot of feedback from people that was like, we want more stories. You know, we love the stories. And I just used the stories in the first book to kind of illustrate a point, but I was like, okay, man, I can write stories. And a lot of times I'm trying to like shorten the stories. And so, uh, the second book, hunting big mule deer, the stories, uh, that I I put in, I think eight or nine, uh, you know, long form stories, you know, I mean, I think one of them was 12,000 words long, um, you know, uh, uh, actual hunts from day one to the, to the end of the season. You know, everything I did on every day almost. And, um, and, and I love writing stories because that's just like getting to go hunting again. And, uh, and then, you know, there's a lot of good mule deer hunters down here and, uh, you know, I'm not the only one getting it done by any means. And, uh, so I recruited, uh, I think seven or eight or nine other guys, uh, to submit a story, Ryan Lampers, uh, Randy Ulmer, uh, Mark Smith wrote my forward, um, you know, some real no- well-known buck hunters, they, they submitted a story. And then, um, I recruited some people that are not so well-known. They're what I call up and coming buck hunters, um, that aren't, aren't really well-known, but they're getting it done. Um, uh, you know, Scotty Thompson, um, uh, uh, Jordan Bud, um, Travis Hobbs, uh, Corey Dixon, um, you know, guys that people, you know, don't, are just starting to find out about, you know, I had them, them put that in there too, because you can learn something from everybody, just like mm-hmm. what we were talking about, about talking to people. And so, so that's what the second book was all about. And, um, it 400 pages long, I think the first book was 275. So, you know, the second one's a chunk, it's a, it's a big book, but, but, uh, you know, reading a book to me is, is mind focus, you know, looking at reading stuff on my phone. Oh, flip. That's distracted. I had to shut my phone off to do this podcast or there'd be 36,000 notifications coming up. You know, I can't yeah. read anything on my phone, but, you know, sitting down to read a, read a good long book. Oh yeah. That that's where my brain, uh, really, really turns on. And you can learn a lot from stories. We, you know, we opened this podcast talking about Kurt Darner, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's where I learned a lot of that stuff. Those stories that he wrote, you know, you'll actually yeah. play those stories in your head when you're out there hunting and you know because that's how you learn that's how humans have learned for thousands of years is so that's what that was all about yeah yeah unfortunately i haven't got a chance to read the second book yet but the first book it's all like i i read it one and a half times um it, it's right. you know it's, it's a great book so i'll put all that up to the show notes hey man i want to thank you again for coming on i know you know uh things get busy and you're a busy man so i, I really appreciate you finding a squeezing a little bit of time to sit down with me and chat and talk to some canadians about mule deer hunting you bet, dude. My pleasure. I know it was hard for us to find a day that worked for both of us. Gosh, what, what have we been trying for like a year? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been about a year, but you know, it was worth it to me and I, I'm sure my listeners would agree. So, uh, and me again, too, dude, it was, I'm glad you're a tenacious guy, man. And you just, just keep chasing. Cause that's what it took. And uh, man, I'll help you any way I can. And I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. I wanted to, he- I want to hear about your, your big buck story that you got on the cover. Um, but that's going to have to wait till another time. So it'll be a good, uh, a good okay. reason for me Let's, to focus we, and get we, back We down. can do it again, man. Let's schedule something, um, uh, and and we we can talk all about that buck. Um, and you're talking about the buck on the first book. Yeah, you bet. Yeah, two oh one, man. He's really probably my second or third biggest mule deer, dude. Would love to talk about it. That's yeah, like a ten be- year story, by the way. <laughs> that's a that's a beautiful buck. Okay, man. Thanks a lot. Eh? Thank you, Kevin. Have a good day.
Thanks again, everyone, for tuning into the Focus Hunting Podcast, coming at you as part of the Waypoint Outdoors production. Pete and I wanted to thank all you guys, the listeners, for tuning into the over past 100 episodes of the show. This journey has been a lot of fun for both Pete and I, and we couldn't do it without your guys' support, so we really value that. And uh, you're going to notice a bunch of promo codes down in the show notes. Use them, save a bunch. Love you guys. Until the next time. Mm-hmm.